The sound effects as they run out is the, is the best part, isn't it? Uh, the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look. Uh, back here in the Gospel of John, we've come to this, this ancient account of the story of Jesus. And, it's, and we've progressed to the point in which uh, Jesus is, knows that he is about to die. He knows that he's about to, to leave his followers. And right here in the very heart of John's gospel, there's, there's multiple chapters that relay a, a continuous stream of thought, a, a continuous message that Jesus imparts on his followers because he knows that they're not going to be able to see him. Because he knows that they will live without his physical presence being there. He says it because he wants them to know what this life is about. And so we're going to be taking a, a look this morning at a, a selection of those uh, of the, those passages. A selection of those verses of what Jesus says to his disciples as we, we trace, as we lead up to Easter, several of the themes that he develops along the way. So here, uh, I invite you to join with me as we hear the words of our Lord and Savior as he spoke to his disciples. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another another. Later he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And again, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it, may, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends." You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you 
and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And finally, later in chapter 15, but when the helper comes, and that is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. God, there's so many things as we come to an ancient text like this. The manner of speaking, the allusions, the, 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 just the framing of the language, Lord, which sounds uh, so foreign to our ears and, and, and so mysterious in its meaning. Yet, God, you gave us these words and you preserved these words that in them we might know you. In, you, in them we might find your mission and your purpose in this world, Lord, that in them we might find ourselves and what you are doing in us and through us. God, I pray by your spirit that you would bring us to yourself through this text this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was in college, I lived uh, in downtown Chicago, and, and I was at a Bible college, and so uh, I had a, a lot of friends who were, who were fervent uh, for various things that they thought the Christian life boiled down to. And, and I remember on one occasion, my, my friend Jack came, and, and he said, come with me. I'm, I'm going up uh, to DePaul University, uh, a couple stops up on the Brown Line, to go and, and share the gospel with folks. And so I went with him, and, and we prayed as we went that, that God would lead us into to having uh, conversations with folks that we needed to have. And, and so we uh, ended up speaking for quite a long time to this young lady who was there in the student center at, at DePaul. And we used our, our little uh, tract, and we... Uh, we walked through and talked about what sin and forgiveness looks like. We talked about uh, that, that forgiveness was, was given to any who asked of it. We sat with her and we prayed with her uh, that, that she would be forgiven of her sins. And in, in a great sense of excitement, feeling like we had, had accomplished our purpose there that day, and, and we gave her a hug, and, and I said, almost in, in the parting words, I said, and now, and now you can live for God and not for yourself. And the girl looked at me, and, and with a tone that I, I don't know if it's confusion or curiosity or skepticism, but she looked at me and said, what does that mean? I said, that you can live for God and not for yourself. Like, isn't that a self-explanatory statement? <laughs> what does that mean? And the anxiety of my heart builds up and, and the f fluster in my face grows because, because I can't come to the words. It's a question that's so fair and so honest and so true that I should have an answer, right? Surely a Bible college student who just presented the gospel knows what it means to live for God, and yet the words failed me. 
But maybe also I panicked because there was something in me that said that maybe I don't know what those words mean. That maybe the Christian life that I had lived and the Christian life that I had experienced to that stage and that time had not prepared me for such a question as this. Maybe I didn't know what the Christian life really was about. I bring it up because I think that often of us, that oftentimes we, even we who have been Christians and professing professing Christians for a long time, who have been lifelong members of a church, when we reflect on our lives, when we reflect what kinds of lives that we are to live, we stumble on such a simple question as this. We struggle to find the words for what does it mean to live for God? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Thomas, we remember uh, just a, a couple verses before this as Jesus says, hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm taking off, I'm leaving, but don't worry because you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas is sitting there, standing there, and he goes, uh, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and we don't know the way. How can we know the way of what we're supposed to do? And so many of us sit in that crisis, looking at our lives and wondering, is this what Jesus was talking about? Is this the life, the full life? Is this the life of purpose and meaning that Jesus promised is there something too more to it? So when we ask that question, what does it mean to live for God? We have confusion at the start and maybe disillusionment at the end. But Jesus did not leave us with that question unanswered. Jesus, as he prepares to leave this world, as he prepares his disciples to live in this in-between time, the span when he is not physically on this earth, as he prepares them and us, for we live in that same time, right? He gives them a vision, a purpose, a calling, a mission about what their life is to be about in the here and now. And I think it's in these verses that we've read here today. You see, Jesus, as he sits with his disciples after that last supper, which is really the first supper of a new kingdom, he is laying out for them a vision of a new people, a new community, a new church. And so we're going to look this morning at, at, at these verses. We're going to look at the things that Jesus says his followers are to be about. He's, we're going to look at the things he says his followers do in the here and now. What does Jesus say it means to live for him? And the first one is, is pretty obvious there, right? It's said over and over and over again in this text that, that we, God has called us to be a new people, a church that loves one another. It starts right off the bat in John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. If you've been around the church, uh, that is not a, an unfamiliar text, but I think it is a little bit surprising still. I think it's surprising to us because of its 
priority. You see, of all the things that Jesus could have said about what life in this time and place is to be like, of all the things he could have said my disciples and my followers are to be about, right here in this, uh, this little brief nugget here that he, he slips in, this nutshell of the Christian faith, he, this is his commandment. This is the new defining era of his church of his people is that they would love one another just as he has loved you and that's not the nutshell that I grew up thinking the Christian life would come down to that's not the nutshell that I would have used I think the picture of my mind the picture of my of my childhood of of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ was was cast in this vision of a, of a journey, of a, of a pilgrimage, right? Some of you will be familiar with this uh, very familiar old text called The Pilgrim's Progress that this Puritan named John Bunyan wrote back in the 17th century. And it's been one of the most influential texts in Christianity uh, for several times. It's one of the longest-running continuous print books in print, uh, second maybe to the King James Bible itself. And in this story, he, he recount, recounts this spiritual allegory, the spiritual story of a man, the, the everyman figure of the text whose name is aptly Christian, right? And Christian's job is to, to get from the city of destruction and make his way to the celestial city, where, uh, which, is, which is heaven. And so along the way, he, he, he struggles and he toils. He passes through the cross and has his burden roll away. And he, he faces the snares and the doubts that are common to man. And I don't think that this was actually John Bunyan's fault, right? But it is the story that my, the way that my brain captured that story was to think that the purpose of the Christian life, the answer that I probably butchered and, and got out to that girl that day at DePaul University was is that what does it mean to live for God? Well, it means to, to, to make it to the end, to remain pure, to remain steadfast, to have strong faith, to be confident, to, 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 to survive the toils and snares that gets to the end. What does it mean to live for God? It's just for me to make it, to survive. Jesus offers this other vision, and it's actually quite explicitly a not about me. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. See, it's not just surprising in its priority. It's surprising in the extent of, of selflessness that Jesus is commanding them. You see, he says, love just as I have loved you. Remember, this is sitting around the table where Jesus has just gone around washing their feet, taking the, the job of the lowest servant. Remember, this is sitting at the meal where Jesus has just offered the, 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 the choicest mor mor morsel of bread to the one who would betray him, to his enemy. See, when Jesus says, love just as I have loved you, he even hints at it later on when he tells us, right? When he says, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
Because when Jesus commands his followers over and over and over again in these verses to love one another just as I have loved you, it means we know where his love takes him, right? To a death where he dies on the cross. You see, when Jesus calls us to be a new people who love one another, he's calling us to be a church that is not for myself. My mind twisted the story of the gospel very frequently. It still does. To turn the story to be uh, about me making it to the end, me being alone on a journey like Christian was, me who, who has the command to love one another, but loving one another is just something you do on the journey, not the destination, right? In the story, Christian takes up companions like faithful and hopeful, and he walks on the parallel journey with them for short stretches, but they're more the accessory, not the goal. When Jesus nutshells what this new people is to be about, what this new community is to be about, he says the goal is to love one another as I have loved you. This love, though, is not, uh, we could find some, some variation of this phrase, right, as, as, as a very popular philosophy anywhere, right? That, that, that there's any number of places and people who would tell you that really it just comes down to loving one another. But this is a very different kind of love. Normally when we talk about love, we, we, we're talking about tolerance, right? We're talking about um, allowing one another the space to live. We're talking about not doing harm to one another. And, and Jesus' love includes all that, but Jesus' love goes to the furthest extent, the event where he says that you are willing to die for the good of someone else. It's not just the priority and the extent, it's also the implication. Because all throughout this text, Jesus is saying, as the Father has done to me, I have done to you, and now you go to others. Right? He says even later in uh, chapter 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And he then comes back to this command, so love one another. You see, we're not just uh, the implication of Jesus saying love one another. It's not just a thing you do, but he's saying, I'm leaving, I'm taking off, but you are going to be the ones who continue my love. It is through you that the world will know the love of Jesus. You are Jesus to one another, particularly to the people in the room, right? Jesus goes to great pains to define this love one another, and it's the people who he has, has brought into this upper room. Love one another, it sounds poetic and it sounds nice and quaint when it's big and abstract and when it means everything, but Jesus spoke it to a group of people who sat in one room. And I'm convinced the more and more that we read the New Testament, these, these verses that command us to love one another are dealt with in a real people, in real time, and in real space. So as you sit here this morning and you hear these words to love one another, you should be looking down the aisles to your left and to your right. You should be looking behind you 
and in front of you because God has given you a primary playground by which to understand and to, to live out his commands. And it's the people who are near you. That we are to be a church that is not for me. It's not a church for myself, but it's a church in which we live out Christ's commands to his disciples. By this, they will know that you are mine. By the way that you take care of one another. The way that you put the other's needs in front of your own. The way that you attend to one another in your doubts. The way you attend to one another in your fears. The way you attend to one another in your hunger. Right, a lot of times in our culture, uh, you'll leave a church and it's common, you'll say, but I just wasn't being fed, right? Or, or I just didn't like this program, but Jesus' vision for life together is not primarily about what you get out of it, but what you give to it. That God's people are to be a community, a community that loves one another. But he doesn't just stop with an in-house project. Jesus continues, and, and there we'll read here, read with me in John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, what does it look like to follow after Jesus? What does it look like to live for God? Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will you do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see, we're surprised not just that we're to be a church that's not for ourselves, but not just for myself, but also that we together are to be a church that's not just for ourselves. You say, he's, he looks at the church and he says, love one another. But then Jesus is going to say, but look out to the world and do the works that I do. You see, uh, in, in 15, 16, he will say, uh, he will say that um, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. At the bottom, at the end here, the last verse that's printed in your bulletin in 1527, Jesus says that you are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to bear witness, to tell the world of what you have seen. That these works, this fruit that Jesus commands uh, over and over and over again is explicitly outward facing. It's something that surprises us, again, by the priority that Jesus gives it. You see, for much of my life, I thought growing in Christ, right, is to grow in, in my experience of, of, of warm, fuzzy feelings when I thought about Jesus. The, the central theme of the Christian life, of what does it mean to, to live for God, is to feel the burden of my sin roll away. And it is that. But when Jesus breaks down what does it mean to live for God in this world, he repeats this phrase, to do the works, to bear the fruit, to do what I command. What does he mean? What does he mean that we, as a people, 
are to be for the outside world. You see, there's phrases in here that we don't really know what to do with because we're surprised not just by the priority, but also, again, by the extent. Surely Jesus was being a little uh, hyperbolic, right? Greater works than these, greater works than what I have done will you do, he says, because I'm going to the Father. Ask whatever you want in my name and I will do it, he says. And immediately, um, you know, Maybe your brain's not as, as sick as mine, right? But like my brain goes to like the, the Aladdin's genie, right? Whatever I ask, whatever the, 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 the issue is that I want, but that's not the theme of what he's talking about. You see, Jesus is saying, ask whatever in my name or for my sake might be even a, a better way of understanding. Ask whatever you want for my sake and it will be given for you. See, Jesus is saying that this world, the, the, the story that Jesus began, the works that he did when he was confined into a physical place in the Middle East, right? The, the works that Jesus did when he was confined uh, by a lack of knowledge of who he was and what he was doing in the world. Jesus says you are to take up those works and take them out, to go, he says, to be my witnesses, he says, because the work that Jesus was doing to bring shalom, to bring healing, to bring justice, to bring truth to the world, he was just getting started. And I think if we can play with the, the images of the stories, right, I want to talk uh, about another story, another allegory that was written that I think gives us a little bit better basis to understand what Jesus is going after. And that is this, this children's book uh, written by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You see, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis doesn't envision the Christian life as this pilgrimage, as this journey. But he views it as, as the, the, the throwing off of an evil queen. Right? The Christian life in the allegory of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is a story in which the primary object is to free Narnia from the curse of the witch. And so the, the, the children are set about on the task of taking up their rightful place as the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve uh, to reign under the banner of Aslan. The, the God figure, this lion who, who, who is Jesus in, in the way that he works in the allegory. And you see, if you take this shift, right? So if, if, if we say to uh, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and we say, ask whatever you want in Jesus' name and he'll do it. And immediately, if I'm Christian, I'm going, like, can I take the bullet train through the valley of the shadow of death? Can I like jump over that river uh, where I have to, to the test of faith at the end? Can I get away from that which is uncomfortable, that which is unlovely, that which is hard and evil? And we think, well, God doesn't act, do that. He doesn't relieve those burdens. But if we come to understand that what Jesus is doing is throwing off the empires of evil, if what we see what Jesus is doing is breaking the, the, the reign of hostility in the world, then, then it makes a whole lot more sense, right? 
if what we ask in Jesus' names is we are, are wearing the, the, the golden lion on our chest and, and marching forth under his banner to demonstrate love and truth and peace, well, then that paradigm, paradigm makes a whole lot more sense. We'll do greater works than what Jesus did because Jesus is continuing to work through us to more people, to more places, to more spots, even a spot like Midtown Memphis. See, that's the implication, though. See, Jesus doesn't just promise us that you are going to be anointed with some special voodoo power to, to do great things in the world. He's saying that a Jesus is going to do greater works through you than what he was able to do even himself in the world, that we are to be Jesus to the world. That's why we as a church uh, in our mission statement will say that we are a worshiping community sharing in Christ's mission to make all things new. That we exist as a church not to become bigger or, or better, but to create a, a better city. That we are a church that is not for ourselves. That in our sphere of influence, in our square inch of this earth, we will seek the, the flourishing of our city, the care of God's creation, the restoration of beauty and God's festival joy, the seeking of justice for the poor, the marginalized, and the destitute. And perhaps in a special way, seeking that the, those who are distant from God would see and know a love that they have been strange to, a love that they've not heard of, a love that they have been uh, not shown in this world. What does it mean to live for God? Jesus says it means to love one another as he has loved us and to do the works that he does. And that can be an awfully scary thing. It can be an awfully scary thing to hear Jesus say something like, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Because if you are like me, then immediately you look at your life and, and you, the, 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 the tally marks on the bad side start adding up really quick. The, the, the tally marks of the ways that you don't love to the sacrifice that Jesus did, the, the tally marks of the way that you have not been about yourself add up really quick. The, the, the impotence that you feel when you look at the severity of the need of what God is talking up adds up really quick. But here uh, in, verse, in chapter 15, Jesus is telling us that we can be a church not for ourselves because we are not by ourselves. We're not alone in the task that God has given us, but God works through us. So just as guilt and fear over our inadequacy reach their climax, Jesus looks at them and says, uh, Jesus looks at them and says, apart from me, you can't do anything. A vine that's cut off from its branches cannot do anything. You see, as Jesus synthesizes the commands he's given, he gives them this third command, and that is to abide in me. If you're reading in your own Bible, you might, you might have a different word there. It might say, remain in me, or, or stay in me, or live in me. But it's a word uh, that's very, very common. It means to, 
to stay in a plot, in a place, to live in a house, to, to kick off your feet and hang around for a little while. Jesus says, abide in me. And tomes and tomes and tomes have been written as people wonder, uh, what does this mean? Everything from the very, very concrete, here are the steps of what it looks like to abide, to the very mystical of, of relationship and love and beauty. And I think he means something of them both. That to abide in me he has a very uh, deliberate and conscious aspect to it. Right? He says, uh, if you do what I command, then you will abide in me. You see, the thing is, is that there is war which is in you. There is war which pulls you away from the person of Christ. If we go back to Narnia, if we go back to the children and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe that tells the story of one of the brothers named Edmund. Right, Edmund goes into this magical land and he meets the witch before anyone else does. And the witch offers him this Turkish delight, this meal that would warm him up and feed him. And Edmund, though he knows he ought not to, takes the food from the witch. But what Edmund does not realize is that this food is enchanted. And this food gives him a hunger and a thirst for more and more. So much so that the, the, C.S. Lewis says he would eat it till you died. Edmund, when he deliberately takes the Turkish delight from the witch, sets his, his emotions and his actions on a trajectory. So that when uh, the other children hear the story and the name of Aslan, this God figure, it says that Edmund was filled with a mysterious, horrible feeling. While the other children were filled with a mysterious, lovely feeling. You see, Edmund took a, a deliberate and conscious step away from the good of Narnia and towards the evil of the witch, and all of a sudden he couldn't make sense of what was good or right anymore. He wasn't sure what the right side was. It was, became intolerable for him uh, to, to continue living apart from the witch. When Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me, he means at, at one level, hang with me. Because there is an act uh, to that when you deliberately and consciously disobey God, you are doing violence against your soul. Such that the things that Jesus says are beautiful and good no longer feel beautiful and good. When you deliberately and consciously disobey God, you are conditioning your heart to hunger and thirst for things which are ugly and bring destruction and evil into the world. John Calvin, an old theologian, talks of this verse, and he, he talks about when Jesus says, abide in me, he, this old biblical picture of a hen that keeps her chickens under her wing. He says, because uh, otherwise our indifference would carry us away and make us fly to our own destruction. Jesus says, abide in me, and I will bear fruit through you. And one of the things on a very functional level he is telling them is don't go running after other things because you're cutting yourself off from the vine. But he also means something much more positive and, and perhaps even more mystical. 
that there is a life that flows from the vine into the branches, that there is a, a, a feeding and a nourishing, that there is, as, as Edmund's sisters Lucy and Susan would experience, a, a joy of, of riding on the back of Aslan, of smelling his fur and holding on to his mane, that there is laughter and that there is joy, that there is, that there is a simple loveliness. In Jesus, such that the, to, to obey Aslan as they go into battle, to obey Aslan makes perfect sense because they understand what Aslan is doing. You see, we look at the task that Jesus has set before us, and it feels so big and hard and impossible, and it is until Aslan comes and, and reorients us. Instead of Aslan setting us up to be friends versus servants, setting us up that our joy may be full as we understand what it means to live in our place under him, to be fueled, to be directed, and in Edmund's case, to be forgiven by the God of the universe. See, Jesus... When Thomas was said, how can we know the way? Jesus' response to him was, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The way is not some uh, charted territory, not some six steps. It is a person, the person of Jesus. And as we engage with him and he engages with us, as he recalibrates our hearts and resets us on the ground, he sets us back into the world to love and to serve, but not as ourselves, but as extensions of him, fed by him, cared for him. You see, we were made to be people for whom the life of Christ is to flow out from us into the rest of the world. And so much of our dread and anxieties and fears, our existential crises are because we have tried to cut ourselves off from the vine and tried to tell ourselves a story in which we're independent. But by God's grace, he asks us, he commands us, he invites us to be a church that is not for ourselves because he has not left us by ourselves, but he remains and abides in us. The love and power of Jesus is meant to radiate through us to the rest of the world but it can only do so as we stay united to him. I invite you to join with me in prayer. God, we're a, a people that is often confused and frustrated. Confused and frustrated because this world is not what we thought it would be. And uh, our doubts and our fears keep following us and finding us back. And yet, Lord, you set before us this picture that in you with you, Lord, that there is life, a life that, that we cannot access on our own, but a life that is full of your joy and your beauty. Lord, I pray even today, Lord, that your spirit would work in us to show us that joy, to convince us that it is real, and to lead us into the fullness of your life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.